If you could go back and watch a play from 1937, it would seem different. Cesario, oh, Cesario, you do not keep promise with me, madam. Uh, gracious Olivia. What you say, Cesario. My lord would speak. My duty hushes me. If it be to the old Maybe you, kind of lord. stiff, maybe a little stagey. Still so cruel. And still so constant, my lord. What, to perverseness? You uncivil lady. Come, boy, with me. Performing Shakespeare in America has changed. There are a handful of people we can thank for that. And we're going to spend a half an hour with one of them now. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Theater director Michael Kahn first came here to Washington, D.C. in 1986. He'd done Shakespeare in the Park for Joe Papp and run the Shakespeare Theater in Stratford, Connecticut before then, and his mission here was to create a new company called the Shakespeare Theater at the Folger Shakespeare Library. 33 years later, as he prepares to retire, Michael Kahn's mission to change Shakespeare performance in America has been accomplished. In 1992, the troupe left the Folger and changed its name to the Shakespeare Theater Company. Over the years, STC and Michael Kahn have won a combined 100 Helen Hayes Awards. That's the DC version of the Tonys, as well as an actual Tony in 2012 for regional theater. But for all that success, we might say that Michael's greater legacy will be not on stage, but in the classroom. Since 1968, Mr. Kahn has been a faculty member of the drama division at the Juilliard School in New York. For 25 years, he was the division head, and it's there that he has helped change the way Shakespeare is performed here in the United States. There's a lot to be learned about Shakespeare from listening to Michael, and so we were very happy when he agreed to come in recently for a conversation about this remarkable career. We have the conversation for you now in this podcast, which we call, I Am Able to Instruct or Teach. Michael Kahn is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, Michael, you worked in a number of cities before you came here to the Folger in 1986. So how different is it to direct Shakespeare in Washington, D.C., you know, in the nation's capital where politics is just never far from anyone's mind? I think doing Shakespeare in Washington is a particular perk for me. I mean, I've done Shakespeare in many places in the country, but I found, one, the audiences were really used to listening, and then they pick up any kind of political thought, idea, and are very current uh, and find resonance in Shakespeare, uh, which I never found in audiences anyplace else. Does that influence how you think about the plays and how you think about staging them, given that I imagine you're thinking about your audience? Well, I've always probably felt when I was doing Shakespeare that I was both honoring the playwright, you know, 400, 40, 50 years old, and trying to see it through the times I live in. That doesn't mean setting it in modern dress. It just means those things in the plays that strike me and any of us as something that also connects to the world that I'm in has always been important to me in staging the plays. What certainly has been different for me was, first of all, coming to the Folger which was a small theater. I had been doing Shakespeare in huge theaters, and having the opportunity to work in an intimate setting gave me a new idea about what performance could be. Proudly we hail you, our dear 
mater, noblest home of the right and the true. Hallowed your hallways and verdant your pastures, sing, cheer, and shout for the green, white, and blue. My honored lord. <laughs> my most dear lord, my excellent good friends. <laughs> How do you both? As the indifferent children of the earth. Happy in that we are not over happy. Uh, on fortune's cap, we are not the very button. No, the soles of her shoes. Neither, my lord. Can you live well, that's way? interesting because I wondered if that sense of intimacy also plays into the idea that in your audience, you have people who know power intimately and people who think about power and people who are kings and king makers. Which comes back to my initial question. I mean, I noticed that you had a Supreme Court justice on your stage once. Well, actually, we've actually had the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, justice you will Kennedy all welcome our distinguished, distinguished bench. From the United States Supreme Court, we'll have our longtime participants, Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen G. Breyer, and Elena Kagan. From the Supreme Court of Canada, a new and very welcome uh, Justice guest, Kennedy did that trial of Hamlet, which we first did at the Supreme Court in another chamber, and they did it several times on our stage after. But there was a time when, for one night each season, we invited the Supreme Court to play a role, and we sent over speech teachers, I sent over customers, and we rehearsed. And they were in, uh, the first time was in Henry V, and uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist played the chorus, and Justice O'Connor was playing the Queen of France. And we rehearsed her scene, and she was, you know, really quite good at it. And Henry, was being played by uh, Harry Hamlin, says uh, he's about to do the peace treaty between France and England, and he's about to leave the stage with the French, and he said, will you go with us or will you stay here? And she said, no, I will go with you. Perhaps a woman's voice may do some good. That was not the whole <laughs> line, but Justice O'Connor stopped at that moment to an immense applause. And then well, that's what I mean, exactly, that Shakespeare has a way of just echoing with such strength and speaking to the moment. It's always been, it's, you know, I'm always surprised when there's an editorial of the Washington Post or something like that, that you know, how surprising it is that this particular production is so relevant. And I, I, I don't pretend that I don't know that. I mean, there's rarely been an election or a primary where we haven't done Richard III or Coriolanus. But I'm, I, I'm aware uh, that the audience, some of the audience, are actually people who do have some position or say in how things are. I don't pretend that somebody coming to a play can change their entire worldview, but I do know that Shakespeare does make you think uh, and it's always been my hope that these people who do have a chance to make serious decisions for all of us would reflect upon some of the issues in a play as they think about how they're going to vote or how they're going to legislate. Uh, and we've had the most interesting uh, responses to plays because of that. When we were doing Time in of Athens... And that was in the 90s, but you said it in the 80s. Yeah, but. which is, you know, a play that many people haven't seen, but which I came to love. And it's really about a rich man who 
uh, has a great many friends and everybody loves him. And then he loses all his money and becomes a pariah and then becomes very angry and, and rails against the world. And I got a letter with all of somebody's subscriptions cut up. She wrote me saying that she was giving up her subscription because I was trying to change the national election. And I, <laughs> I, 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 I thought how wonderful that could be. Uh, but, but she said, because you're making fun of Reaganomics. And I thought, well, I hadn't really thought about that. I was just doing a play about a society that's had a boom and then a bust. And we were in the middle of having another boom. And I wanted people to remember that a bust usually follows a boom. But I wrote her back and said, you know, I'm very sorry that you feel this way and are going to give up your subscription. But I have to tell you that when you write to me that a 450-year-old play can upset you this much and mean so much to you politically, it gives me a good reason to get up in the morning and go to rehearse. Exactly, exactly. And it, and it does seem that infusing your work with political consciousness would come so naturally to you, no matter whether you're in Washington, D.C. Or, or any other city in, in the country. Uh, and I'm thinking that is because you came of age in the, in the 1950s, and, and uh, that was one of the most re- revolutionary decades in American entertainment. You had the birth of the New York Shakespeare Festival, and rock and roll was happening, and sexual revolution was just around the corner. I'm curious, what, where were you on that countercultural... Uh-huh. Continuum well, when you got started in theater, and and how did that revolutionary time shape your interest in and your approach to Shakespeare? To be honest with you, uh, I was part of all of that. Um, the first play that I did as the artistic director of the Shakespeare Theater at Stratford, Connecticut, happened during the Vietnam War, and so when I realized I was going to do Henry the Fifth. First, I hadn't really wanted to do it because I thought of it as a very nationalistic, jingoistic piece of theater. But I, I, but then I read the play again, and I thought, well, my gosh, here is a leader who kills some of his prisoners against the rules of engagement, who allows the church, who doesn't want to uh, pay tithes to him or give him money. They suggest that he should go to war to France. And I thought oh, there's a lot of really ugly things going on in this play. So I did the play as an anti-war play. And we, we were on Broadway with it, and at the end of the show, the cast got left the stage with candles, and we went to Times Square with a vigil. So from the very beginning, somehow politics and playmaking were the same to me. I've always wanted to do a play that had something to say. And so I turned to Shakespeare and was very lucky in that Joe Papp, you mentioned the New York Public Theater, gave me my first job uh, directing Measure for Measure. And so I found a playwright whose interest in what's going on in the world and interest in what's going on inside of people and what's going on in families and your relationships to the universe and every possible both uh, power versus, you know, the private life, the political life. Uh, every issue was with this playwright. Dear Princess, were not his requests so far from reasons yielding, your fair self should make a yielding against some reason in my breast, 
and go well satisfied to France again. You do the king, my father, too much wrong, and wrong the reputation of your name, in so unseeming to confess receipt of that which hath so faithfully been paid. I do protest I never heard of it, and if you prove it, I'll repay it back, or yield up equity. We arrest your word. Boyette, and so I spent much of my life challenged by working with Shakespeare over these years. I know at the time, a book that was really influential was Shakespeare, Our Contemporary by Jan Cott. And that was about the time you were coming up. I, I know all of you guys read it, and it was for you personally uh, influential. So remind us, what was the thesis of that book, and what did it mean to you and to your really your whole generation in theater? Well, I think Jan Cott talked about Shakespeare as... It was called Shakespeare, our contemporary. Uh, But he made us, all of us, feel that there was in Shakespeare something that related very strongly to the situation we would find ourselves in in the world as we saw it and lived it at the time and and gave us the freedom to, to see it that way. Of course, I was influenced by everything. I was influenced by Brecht in a huge way. I was influenced by the Kabuki, but I was also influenced by Stanislavski. So for me at the time, it was a very rich uh, mind of, of cultural influences. I started out as an avant-garde director, so it's very odd that I'm having this conversation with you 50 years later. <laughs> well, who didn't in the 60s? <laughs> um, but how did you take that really rich mix of influences and apply it to Shakespeare? Because you're really part of shaping a modern American style to Shakespearean performance, and particularly the work that you, you've done at Juilliard. So what was the American approach when you started your career, and, and how clear was your own vision of what it could be? And, and how you could develop it. First thing was to talk about how to speak Shakespeare. And when I was entering the theater, there were two kind of actors. There was the classical actor who basically had studied in England or people like Morris Evans and Judith Anderson who'd come from England and had careers in America. Sir, grant me a few hours yet. One day to prepare in one little day before I go out of Corinth forever. What? And then there was the new American style, which was basically called the method, which was very emotionally connected, very physically connected, but very much not using the text. Domestic fury and fierce civil strife shall cumber all the parts of Italy. Blood and destruction shall be so in use and dreadful objects so familiar that mothers shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the hands of war. All pity shall... As a matter of fact, when I went to high school and taking acting class, we were always told that the text wasn't important. It was the subtext that was important. Right. The text is just the tip of the iceberg. That's exactly... Did you go to acting school? I have heard this, yes. (laughs) Because that's exactly what they said, uh, and which I've even said when I started teaching. So for me, it was how to meld those two things. I believed very much in the way of dealing with the text, of having a real clarity, 
which required a lot of technique, having melody in your voice, having tones, but also not acting from the head up, but and, and trying to add to that or incorporating that into what I think was very American, which was real emotional connection to the uh, character you were playing or to the situation that you were in, and a very physical life on stage. Were you not sent for? Is it of your own inclining? Uh. Is it a free visitation? Come, deal justly with me. Come, come, nay, speak. What should we say, my lord? Anything but to the purpose. You were sent for, and there is a kind of confession in your looks which your modesties have not craft enough to color. <laughs> I know the good king and queen have sent for to you. what end? My lord. That you must teach me. Mm -hmm. But let me conjure you by the rights of our fellowship, by the obligation of our ever-preserved love, and by what more dear Which was very different from the British. Very, very at the Which was time. very text-based and about the beautiful, the poetry. That's right. And at the same time that I was starting to direct, I was invited by John Houseman to be the acting teacher of this new school at Juilliard that because the school was actually devoted to creating actors in America that could do, with hubris, everything. You could do everything from Sam Shepard to Shakespeare. Uh, at that time, they left out things like August Wilson. It was very much a sort of white organization. And I was very devoted to that because that's what I felt I needed as a director. And so that became, in a way, what I saw as an American style. And as American actors began to appreciate the text and develop a technique to go with it, they became quite, quite good at doing Shakespeare. And I think the Brits became very interested in what Americans were doing in terms of emotional connection and moment-to-moment uh, -moment acting. And so... I think the acting in the two different areas are much closer together now. Would you say, though, there's still an American style of Shakespeare, or, or have, have the two grown so similar there isn't really a distinct well, distinction? I think there is generational changes. An older generation and a younger generation speak Shakespeare differently. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth. Oh. Forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave and o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why, it appeareth no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. I did, I just did a production of Hamlet. And we had a group of English actors playing Claudius and Gertrude, and I was very interested in finding a conversational way to speak Shakespeare, because I, even I had changed my mind in the last five years about the way audiences hear Shakespeare. And if it is too um, plumby, if it is too performed... Uh, it becomes foreign. So is there a way to keep the meter and the verse and the sense, but to make it more conversational? What players are they? Even those you were wont to take delight in. 
The, the tragedians of the city. city! Do they hold the same estimation they did? They still follow? No, indeed are they not. How comes it so? Do they grow rusty? Nay, but there is, sir, a company of children that are most tyrannically clapped for it. These are now the fashion. Oh, do the boys carry it away? Aye, that they do, my lord. It is not very strange. For my uncle is king of Denmark, and those that would make mocks at him while my father lived now pay 20, 40, 50, 100 dollars apiece for his picture and little. And I think that that's where we are all going now, which is to make Shakespeare sound really human, but still trying to keep the music and still trying to keep the verse. And that's tough. That is the ultimate uh, test. And I'm thinking of something that you said, oh, many years now to our producer, Richard Paul. You said that I think Americans are as good at Shakespeare as anybody, and one reason you thought that is because the performance style of the American mm. musical, that it's energetic and that a song is a big aria. Mm. We're good at that. It sounds like your thinking has evolved in, in the 15 years yeah, since well, you told him that. Well, of course, that was musical theater. But what I meant uh, then, and I still do, which is that the energy that goes into meaning the words in a musical, because what is a musical book? It's a series of telegrams, you know, ransom notes, I used to say, delivered by characters uh, to move the plot further. And then the lyrics of a song are immensely important because much of the character comes through the lyrics. So that attention to the meaning of words and that energy and, and please don't misunderstand me. When I say there's a conversational style, it doesn't mean it has, it has to be done with energy. It's not about talking like this, uh, that you can't follow anything I'm saying. It is a getting it out, but getting it out without being overly ornamental. Or, you know, if you listen to Eleanor Roosevelt talk, and, and we all, you know, my parents worshipped every time... Eleanor Roosevelt would speak on the radio. If you listen to her now, you would think, my gosh, she's such a false person. What a phony she is. She wasn't. wasn't. She just was speaking in an elocutionary way that she was taught. That was the way people spoke when they were supposed to speak well. So, so as a director, how do you get people to inhabit Shakespearean language in that intimate, conversational, every, every day I talk like this way? Well, you d- now, I don't want to simplify what I said because what the actors are doing to sound conversational is not the way they talk over the dinner table. It well, just, no, and it's hugely complex, as yes. you said. So how, how do you get there? Well, first of all, I feel very strongly, and this is something that I think I probably do uh, almost to a fault, is usually ask the actors, what did you just say? And they will give me a paraphrase of a sentence, you know. And I'll say, no, no, that's not what you said. That's not what you said. That may be what you think you said, or you may think what it means. That's not what it means. Let's go by that. Let's see, what does that word mean? What is that word? Why is that word there? Shakespeare didn't put it there just because he needed, you know, to fill up a line of uh, iambic pentameter. He put it there. He's a great poet, a great writer. He chose that word. So first of all, you have to know exactly what you're saying and why you're saying it. To be or not to be, that is the question. 
where it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die, to sleep no more and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil? That's what I do, but if you don't have good consonants, you don't have final endings, you drop your voice at the end of the line, all those things, it won't make any difference, because you have to know all of those things first. It's not about going slow to make a point. It's not about going so fast that you can't follow it. Acting Shakespeare is the Olympics of acting, no matter whether you make it conversational or you decide to make it, you know, uh, something else. Uh, but when I say conversational, I mean, how do you do that in an 800-seat theater? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life but that the dread of something after death? The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Mm, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience does make cowards of us all. I want to pick up on something we were talking about earlier, which is uh, politics and relevance in Shakespeare. And many of the actors and the directors who come on this podcast say something very similar to the point you were making, that what makes Shakespeare's plays endure is that they can always be reinterpreted in the time that they're being produced. But there's always that line of how far to take your interpretation in terms of straying from the text or straying from intent. So how do you think about intent, and how do you make those decisions? I think you have to understand what the intent of the play is. But Shakespeare is not a moralist. The reason that Shakespeare has lived for this many years is he doesn't have a point to make about politics. He doesn't have a point to make about love. He has an investigation of those. So if you are investigating it along with him, you are in the intent of the author. Well, let's talk about this in, in, in the case of an, or give an example. And you were talking about measure for measure before, mm -hmm. but we didn't talk about the staging of it. Mm -hmm. When you staged that play, it was right in the middle of the NEA controversy mm -hmm. over the arts and political funding. So how did the politics of that figure into your production? Well, what changed? First of all, that was the third production of that play I had done. First one I had done in, in, in the park, second one I had done at Stratford, and this is the third one, and I had done it here. I, of course, wanted the sense of censorship to be clear. I did things like paintings being burnt and all kinds of things like that. But the first time I did the play, I thought of Angelo as a completely Tartuffian, unredeemable character. By the time I got around to doing it here, even though we were in the middle of the NEA controversy, and so I felt 
that was partly why I did the play. I also understood that the question in the play was, one, how does a leader deal with a society that seems to be out of control, or is it? And so I saw in Angelo both his hypocrisy, but also his desire to try to solve a problem that the Duke left him with. And I began to understand, as I did when I did Henry V again, that the intent of those plays is to show both sides of what happens. So I set it in a place where the recognition of what was going on with the NEA4 and all the speeches I was making, you know, about piss Christ and as freedom of expression was also about somebody, how do you try to figure out what's the way all through this? Makes me want to see your you put on measure for measure again. Never, this time. never, <laughs> never, 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 <laughs> never. <laughs> but you know, that's the terrible thing. Every one of these plays would be relevant again almost all the time. Some are more relevant than others based on what's going on. It also goes back to what we were talking about with that, that seminal text uh, from Jan Kott, that character isn't fixed, that it mm-hmm. is always the gray area mm-hmm. that, that Shakespeare is exploring. Well, that was, a, you know, you know we, we, we inherited, certainly people of my generation inherited the sort of remnants of a Victorian idea and also uh, an idea from scholars that character was fixed, you know. Uh, you behave one way, and in a way, it's sort of like seeing characters as humors as they were in the medieval theater. And literature, modern literature, begins to t- teach us that there is no such thing as fixed character. Now, you'd think we would have learned that from ourselves, if I, I met your girlfriend and your mother and your teacher and your enemy and they didn't mention your name but they talked about you, it was, they would be talking about five different people. And so Shakespeare knew that. I mean, the extraordinary thing about Shakespeare is that he seemed to have known everything. And I think he knew everything because I think he understood what goes on in a human being because he seems to have understood psychology way before psychology. And he understood that character changes. And if you allow a production to do that, too, it's human. So I'm glad you reminded me of that. I, I have my little copy of uh, Shakespeare, our contemporary, sitting up on my shelf with that, <laughs> with that that's a scribble of a Shakespeare uh, head on the cover. But I haven't looked at it in ages. <laughs> you came to Shakespeare so young. I, I didn't know this before I started uh, uh, reading about you. What's your first Shakespeare memory? Well, I don't, maybe you didn't read this, but my mother was a Russian immigrant. She came over when she was about five and basically self-schooled. She, by the time I came along, she was running a dress shop. But before that, she I understand from relatives, she was a bohemian in the village. I would have loved to known her then, but I didn't. Me too. <laughs> but, but, she yeah. would, but she would come home and she would read to me. And she had read, we lived in Brooklyn, and she read a book by Betty Smith called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And in it, the Irish mother, Francie, reads to her daughter Shakespeare. So my mother read me Shakespeare every night, not Charles and Mary Lamb, not 
Shakespeare for kids, Shakespeare. So those so, were your bedtime stories. Those were my bedtime stories. She uh, And then she read the Bible to me. Now, my mother n- never uh, censored anything in Shakespeare because it was Shakespeare, of course. It was, you know, how could it? There's nothing vulgar in Shakespeare. But the Bible, she was very careful not to read me Song of Solomon and things like that. <laughs> Little did she know how bawdy Shakespeare really was. And, uh, I was going to say, yeah. But she had no idea because like so many other people, that could, Shakespeare is not like that. And so that brings up why so many people never saw the real Shakespeare for hundreds of years. Uh, and so we, growing up, sort of were the recipients of the end of that Victorian idea of Shakespeare. And it wasn't really until... Yes, the 50s and the 60s, when we could break through that. Uh, that explains so much of how you became a Shakespeare. I mean, you, of course, as we know, you've done many, many other other plays and playwrights and staged their works. But, but uh, it does explain, I think, a connection to Shakespeare that others can't claim. Because when you hear, when you think of your bedtime stories, when you, when you hear uh, a certain voice, a certain writer over and over again as a child, it becomes really your fantasy world, right? You, you must yeah. have known Hamlet and Shakespearean characters, almost like that inner, that kind of invisible playmate one has when one's young. I did, actually. I mean, we're all grateful that the Bible didn't turn me into a priest. <laughs> I'm grateful. We are, too. <laughs> Your audiences. You wouldn't be talking to me. I'd be on another station. Another podcast entirely. Discussing yeah. serious issues in the Catholic Church. Yes, I know. So that was your fantasy world. Well, the theater was my fantasy world. It wasn't just Shakespeare. It was the ice show. I directed my first play when I was six. And, I, and when I was about eight or nine, I never wanted to do anything ever else ever. And I never have and I never did. I am so grateful you did all the work that you did. And and I'm so grateful you came on our podcast. Thank you so much for this. Well, thanks for having me, Barb. It was a pleasure. Michael Kahn is retiring this year as artistic director of the Shakespeare Theatre Company of Washington, D.C. He was the Richard Rogers Director of the Drama Division of the Juilliard School from 1992 to 2006, and he was inducted into the Theatre Hall of Fame in 2013. Michael Kahn was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, I'm Able to Instruct or Teach, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Andrew Bates at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Meg McCluskey and Archie Moore at Clean Cuts Studios in Washington, D.C. Please rate and review Shakespeare Unlimited on whatever platform you get the podcast from, especially if you like it. That's one of the best ways to help us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. You can also visit us in person. If you find yourself in Washington, D.C., we hope you'll come over to the Folger. We're right here on Capitol Hill. 
come see a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face to face with one of our first folios, the first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you and thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.